They start so gently. Just a shake. You think you just had too much to eat. Then you realize it's not you that's moving. It's the ground. Oh, shoot. It's an earthquake. Californians live under the threat of them daily. We feel them, like, monthly. And worst of all, we've been waiting generations for a massive earthquake that will remake Southern California forever when it happens. It even has a cute nickname, the big one. Fun! I'm Gustavo Arellano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Today is June 15th, 2021. World leaders meet for a NATO summit to discuss China's military ambitions. Novavax announces its COVID-19 vaccine is 90% effective, even against variants. And California relaxes most of its coronavirus restrictions effective today. Don't get too loco out there, folks. Scientists have determined a mega earthquake happens every 100 years on average in the Golden State. Well, the last time a big one, like a magnitude 7.8 quake, like the stuff of nightmares, the last time one of those hit Southern California, it was about 164 years ago. Back then, L.A. had a population of just over 4,000 people. The metro area now is over 12 million. Great. So to coach us through earthquake anxiety, we're getting together today with my LA Times colleagues that cover wildfires, the coast, and of course, earthquakes. It's our monthly panel of peril, my colleagues of catastrophe. In this episode, our second installment of our series, Masters of Disaster. Musica maestro. Here's our team. Ron Lynn covers earthquakes and COVID-19 for the LA Times. Hi, Ron. Hey. Rosanna Shah is our expert on everything coastal, including earthquake-caused landscape and tsunamis. Hey, Rosanna. Hey. And Alex Wigglesworth covers wildfires, which earthquakes can also cause because earthquake, 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 earthquake. Hey, Alex. Hi. Since we're focusing on earthquakes today, we'll start with our Shakespeare shakers himself. So, Ron, the last time SoCal had a significant earthquake in a major urban area was actually not that long ago, 1994, the Northridge earthquake that hit the San Fernando Valley region. It was only magnitude 6.7. Magnitude is a globally accepted way to measure an earthquake's power. 6.7 is big, but not that big. Yet the damage the Northridge quake caused was massive. Can you remind us of the devastation it caused? Yeah, so the Northridge earthquake was actually the costliest natural disaster to have hit the U.S. at that time. KFWB News Time 432. We've experienced what we believe is a very, very strong earthquake. To, uh, the Northridge earthquake area. measured 6.7 on the Richter scale and shook Los Angeles in the pre-dawn hours of January 17, 1994. So not only did it hit the San Fernando Valley, it also hit places like Santa Monica and central L.A., and 57 people died, including 16 people who were crushed to death in just a single apartment complex. This was one of those dingbat apartment buildings where the ground story is um, held up by skinny poles uh, for carports. You know, it was like a horrific way to die with some of the residents initially surviving, but eventually dying due to the weight of the debris suffocating them. Everything that was in the cupboards in the kitchen plates, vases, you name it. Everything was shattered and laying on the floor. Goldstein considers himself lucky. Right next door, a two-story apartment complex of the same design as his collapsed, killing 16 people. 12,000 homes and businesses suffered moderate to severe damage in the quake. Ten bridges collapsed. 
not only did 200 of these apartment buildings get seriously damaged or destroyed, we actually found out that other types of buildings were very vulnerable, including concrete buildings. The, the big Bullock's department store in Northridge collapsed, and so did a Kaiser Permanente office building. And then we also found that even our steel frame buildings that we thought were modern, their steel skeletons started cracking, about 200 of them. And that poses a risk for the next big one. You know, we don't know what's going to happen in a bigger earthquake if they could come crashing down. And this was just, again, a magnitude 6.7, which is big, but not that big. And the total cost was about $20 billion. Now, okay, so what next? Yeah, so, I mean, something to remember about Northridge is that because it's a 6.7, it really only affected the valley. If you were in Orange County or whatever, you were basically fine. I mean, it it was shaking, but... Can I chime in? Go ahead, Rosanna. Wasn't... The thing also that the earthquake hit so early so that no one was at work or in school or else the death count would have been much higher, right? Or that's what some people have said about this earthquake, that we were actually spared from what it could have been. That's absolutely right, because, you know, concrete buildings did come tumbling down, but those are mostly office buildings, so people weren't hurt in them. And another thing to keep in mind is that, like, several freeways came crashing down. But the fact that it happened at, like, 4 in the morning was basically a godsend. I mean, there wasn't rush hour traffic on the Santa Monica freeway or imagine all these cars on the infamous 210, 5, and 14 interchange just south of Santa Clarita. There was one death of a police officer that was killed, but imagine if that had happened during rush hour. And not only that, it was Sunday morning at 4 a.m. There was like nobody awake. And in the aftermath, you know, we're talking about that one. The the most infamous big earthquake in modern Southern California history was a 1906 San Francisco earthquake. And that was thousands of people dead. But the biggest devastation from that came from the fires triggered by it. Alex, as our wildfires reporter, you've covered how fire prone California is right now with our humongous drought. And the last time we talked, you said about how most fires just start with one little spark. So say the big one hits, power lines go down. What measures uh, do fire officials have to avert an inferno? Yeah, so this is so common that researchers have a term for it, which is post-earthquake fire. I don't know if people realize this, but in the big 1906 San Francisco earthquake, something like 90% of building damage was from fires. And after the Northridge earthquake, there were about 110 fires. Now, these are mostly structure fires, although there were a few grass and brush fires as well, but they tend to ignite in more densely populated areas since earthquakes can bring down electrical lines and rupture gas lines, which can cause buildings to catch fire. And then it can be harder to put fires out because communications can be compromised, equipment might be damaged, emergency responders are probably overwhelmed with calls, and they can also be physically blocked from getting where they need to go. And so a key part of all of this is having fire departments that are well-staffed, well-trained, and prepared. You have to remember, firefighters aren't just going to be putting out fires after a major earthquake. They're also going to be rescuing people from building collapses, trying to stop leaks, doing like all kinds of stuff. And so some of what they have to do in a big disaster is triage. Where do they have a chance of saving the most lives? The LA Fire Department actually calls this earthquake mode. They send firefighters from every station out to do a survey of buildings and infrastructure that can create hazards for one reason or another. Every station has a map of things like freeway overpasses, hospitals, dams, sports stadiums, and they go out and see if there's structural damage or fires or people who need to be rescued. And they're also looking to see if utilities are working or if the water supply is compromised. That's a big one. 
Yeah, no, you mentioned the water supply. And Ron, you and Rosan actually reported a story a couple of years ago about how more than 80% of LA's water supply has to cross the San Andreas Fault, which is the big fault that would create the big one that extends across most of California. The big one, even a major quake, could just cut that water supply. So has there been any improvement to this situation since then? One of the big problems with it is that not only would the, does the San Andreas our big lifelines for water supply from the Colorado River and Northern California. Unfortunately, it crosses it multiple times. So it's just a kind of a disaster waiting to happen. And it's going to take some time to figure out long-term solutions, you know, to this. In fact, they actually built a huge reservoir on our side of the fault somewhere in the Inland Empire area so that we'll have like a six-month supply of water in case we do get cut off from our aqueducts. Not just an easy fix, but then, of course, in this year, all of our reservoirs are, what, 50%, 25%. So if the water gets cut off, Alex, where are our firefighters going to get the water? I think we've already kind of seen this happen after earthquakes where maybe the water supply isn't cut off entirely, but the earthquake has created so many holes or breaks in some parts of the system that it's like a sieve. So there's no pressure to direct the water where it needs to go. So if you turn on a hydrant and nothing comes out. And that happened after the Northridge earthquake. There are about 1,400 water main breaks in some areas of the valley, basically had no water for several hours. So firefighters had to use water tenders, which are tanker trucks that bring water to the scene. They can pump from ponds, reservoirs, creeks, things like that. And what they ended up doing was relying really heavily on pumping water from backyard swimming pools. Luckily, there are a lot of those in the valley that ended up being absolutely critical if you look at reports on how those fires went down. You better have your jacuzzis filled, people, because it might save us all during earthquakes. We'll be right back. We're back with our Masters of Disasters. Rosanna, you cover the coast. So what do you think about when we're talking earthquakes? Yeah, tsunamis. So every time I see a big-ish quake in Alaska or even like Chile, I'm immediately checking if there is a tsunami warning for California. And I'm sure Ron does this too. So for the most part, with the bigger, more far away earthquakes, we do get somewhat of a heads up if a tsunami is coming. And we do have a pretty legit tsunami detection system in this country. There's two tsunami warning centers and a huge network of sensors in the ocean in key parts of the world. But not to be a downer, this system has had some tech issues. Our colleague Anna Phillips in DC found out recently that the system had an outage, a huge outage back in March, for example, because of a broken water pipe that knocked out the program servers. So if a tsunami had happened during that time, we would have been screwed. So what do we do if there's a tsunami? That's something that a lot of folks ask me. A, most experts I've talked to say evacuate by foot, not car. You will you will get stuck in traffic if you drive. B, most coastal cities and counties should have an evacuation route that you can look up that takes you to high enough ground, even for the worst case scenarios. The state geologists just put out new tsunami maps, so the info should be pretty up to date. Practice, practice, practice this evacuation route. Take a selfie when you get to the top. Tell your friends. 
you know, to really feel how real this can be, pull up some of the videos of how Japan got hit by a massive wall of water from that earthquake 10 years ago. So tsunamis are rarely top of mind, but they can be so devastating. People are stranded in their houses. We've seen images of people standing on their roofs, getting rescued by helicopters, and destruction all around them. Muddy water, overturned cars, broken houses, just a real mess. The tsunami swept away my car, and my house was burned down by the fire afterwards. My sons must be very worried about me. The phone lines are bad, and I could only send out one text message. I just want to let my family know that I'm alive and I'm staying here. That alone teaches you never to mock tsunamis. I just think like when I go to Ventura, they have those signs like tsunami level warning or whatever. And you just look at it. You're like, oh, yeah, that'll never happen in my lifetime. And then one day you're caught in them and then. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. We have, quote unquote, enough of a heads up with like the bigger faraway earthquakes. But, you know, there are faults just offshore. And if something happened like right off of Catalina, there's very little time. So I think anytime you go to the beach, it is good protocol to kind of just figure out where the nearest high ground is just so you could run by foot, not by car to the high ground if an earthquake hits. And if you feel an earthquake and you're on the beach in Santa Monica, get up to those bluffs, you know, because there are situations in which there could be an underwater avalanche if there's one thing that you need to worry about. And that could cause a tsunami where we won't get a warning. So you're basically saying, Ron, that the way to fight secret tsunamis is just run as fast as possible. Yes. And don't be like the people in Crescent City in 1964 where after the tsunami came, they decided to go back to their bar, and then the second wave came in hours later and washed them away. Oh, boy. Damn, this is more downer than I thought. Okay, but let's take it out of California. Can you all just remind all our national listeners that it's not just California that suffers quakes? And the one that I always remember that was super famous happened in New Madrid, Missouri in the early 1800s. It was such a humongous quake that actually made the Mississippi River go backwards. Yeah, it was like an earthquake of magnitude 7.2 to 8.2, and it was a major event. And it's not just New Madrid. I mean, there we've seen big earthquakes off of the coast of Boston, damaging brick buildings. It was a it was the Cape Ann earthquake in 1755. If it happened again today, they think that thousands of people could be killed in the Boston area. There was the Charleston earthquake of 1886, perhaps a magnitude 6.9 to 7.3. Even Salt Lake City. There hasn't been an earthquake in historical time, but they're a big risk too. And, you know, in Oregon and Washington too, they just got added to the earthquake early warning system. Yet, you know, there's lots of buildings up there, brick buildings that have been required to be retrofitted in many cities in California that still haven't been up there. And, you know, they suffer from, you know, lots of time between major earthquakes. And it's just not as top of mind for them as it is for us in California. Alex, you're from the East Coast, so you probably didn't grow up with earthquakes on your mind your entire life. How does it feel to be here on the West Coast and just think of nothing but earthquakes? I mean, actually, it's funny. The only earthquake I've ever felt was in Philly. We got one in 2011. I think it was a magnitude 5.8 or 5.9. I remember I was at a budgeting meeting for the newspaper I worked at at the time on the 14th floor of a skyscraper in a conference room and just looking out the window like these floor-to-ceiling glass windows, 
at where the window met the floor and I could see the whole building swaying. And, and I thought it was an explosion because no, I never thought we would have an earthquake. I ran out of that building so fast and they could not get me to come back inside the entire day. I just need to jump in right now. Do not run outside of a building if you feel an earthquake. Ron can refer back to our last episode, This Is How You Die. I know. <laughs> I'm clearly was not trained to deal with these. It's a thing, especially in California, The one of the worst places to be. You might be in a brick bar where you think the brick facade is really cool. But one of the worst things you can do is actually run out because the way brick buildings will collapse, they typically won't collapse on top of you, but the walls will collapse onto the sidewalk. So unfortunately, in, in one of the earthquake, the Paso Robles earthquake in 2004, there were two people inside that were told to rush out. And as they rushed out, uh, a brick wall fell on them and they unfortunately died. But had they stayed inside and dropped covered and held on, uh, they probably would have made it. Could have been me. So run away from tsunamis. Don't run away from earthquakes. How about ducking cover? I mean, uh, we were always taught in elementary school here in Southern California, if there's an earthquake, go underneath a table, duck and cover. So Ron, does that still hold? Yeah, absolutely. Because if it's a really super big earthquake, you're going to be thrown to the ground and, you know, there might be things falling on top of you. One of the only person who died in the Napa earthquake, unfortunately, was a, was a TV that flew into her face and she suffered a head injury. So the best thing you can do is really, you know, crouch down under your desk. Because I grew up here in California, it's common knowledge to me. But I think for people who come in from out of state, their first reaction is to run out. And that's like the one of the worst things you can do. Even if you're in a skyscraper, I mean, the glass from the sky is going to come crashing down. And also, Ron, was this from the New Zealand earthquake that we learned this? But first responders are trained to look for bodies under or people under desks. You know, imagine like a 30-story building collapsed into one pile of rubble. Like, where do you even start? And a lot of first responders are trained to look under desks first so that, again, drop cover and hold on is really the best way to go when an earthquake hits. Absolutely. The desks are surprisingly sturdy. In fact, you know, one of the places where people died the most in the New Zealand earthquake, aside from the big catastrophic collapses of concrete buildings, was just outside of brick buildings that collapsed onto the sidewalk. Ay, ay, ay. So this is all about how not to die during an earthquake. Next, after this break, we're going to talk about what you should do to try to survive an earthquake. We'll be back. And we're back with our Masters of Disasters. And of course, we can't talk about earthquakes and end without making sure our experts are also prepared. So it's a pop quiz time. We are going to ask our experts just simple questions. All of these, by the way, you should all follow. And if our Masters of Disasters are not following them, uh, we might have to call in our air quality control Master of Disaster to replace one of these. So first and foremost, Ron, where is your gas meter? And do you know how to turn it off if you smell gas? Yes, the, the gas meter is just around the backside in the alleyway. And I have a, a special wrench thing I got from the hardware store, and you just turn it one way and, and it closes off. Back in the alleyway. That's a little bit ambiguous there. <laughs> I, I give you a B. Rosanna, do you have a pair of sturdy shoes tied to your bed frame? 
Not tied to my bed frame, but it's under my bed. That's a B plus, so they're there. Alex, how many gallons of water do you need per person per day to survive? Ten. I think it. Uh, Two liters. <laughs> Why did I get the question? Nobody knows the answer to. I know where my gas meter is. It's under the house. It goes off every time I do the laundry. <laughs> Alex, it's actually just a gallon of water per day. Don't worry. I would have failed that one as well. I would have said like a little uh, Yeti canteen of water that would have totally taken care of me. But Alex would have been the most prepared and popular person in her neighborhood if she actually had 10 gallons of water per person per day. My dog Steve has to drink too, and he's very thirsty. Very thirsty boy. And then Alex actually gets an A plus for her because she's prescient. It's a 10 gallons for people around you. To all of you, do you have the MyShake app on your phone? Yes. Yeah, yes. Alex? No. I don't have that much memory. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, do you have an iPhone or do you have an Android phone? Because the Android phone, if it's updated, actually automatically gets the Earthquake Early Warning app. So. Oh, okay. I definitely have it then. A plus. A plus for Android people, not for Apple people. Big brothers finally being uh, benevolent for earthquakes. That's really nice to hear. And then finally, and we kind of answered this, when you feel the shaking start, what should you do? We already know. Do not run, duck and cover, any other things, any of you. So when you get that earthquake early warning, one of the things that you can kind of do is start counting. <laughs> and if it's just like a couple of seconds, you know it's not a big quake. But if it's many, many, many seconds, then you know it's going to be the big one. And Ron, correct me if I'm wrong. This was another thing that I did when we were aggressively covering earthquakes a couple of years ago. I think communication is an unexpected thing that people will need to do just to get in touch with family members, tell people you're safe. So I was taught to, I think one of our sources told us, just to like find out what the landline is or the phone number for your nearest fire station. So I've told my family from out of town that when an earthquake hits, I'm going to try my best to get to that fire station and you can call the fire station to check if I'm going to be okay. Also consider texting instead of calling. Texting is just going to be a lot easier. If the cell phone reception is not really great, I mean, you can use stuff like a WhatsApp or anything that can really help get you by. And then also kind of realize that the phone service might be up and running for the first couple of hours or so, but then it might die off if power outages are, are super consistent. So just keep that in mind. And then finally, here in my home studio, I'm surrounded by unsecured bookshelves with a lot of books with a light above me, and I'm barefoot right now. How many times do I fail? <laughs> I'm nervous right now. A billion. A billion. A billion, billion, billion. What I would totally do, it would be totally worth it if you strap down those bookcases and then, you know, put bungee cords to keep the books on the shelf, you know, when the shaking happens. But you, you'll be so much safer if you go to the hardware store, buy these straps that'll um, attach to the wall, put them into the studs, and those bookcases won't come falling down on you. Please don't jinx it. I'm knocking on wood right now. We should do a series, actually, uh, for the LA Times. Don't be like gullible Gus or something. And just like, use me as an idiot. I do not mind. My masters of disasters can just trash me all you want in the name of public safety. I am for that. And for people who don't care about themselves, think about your pet. Think about your kids. <laughs> 
take care of society. And then finally, of course, we try to end every episode of Masters of Disasters with some solace in a segment within a segment called What Makes You Happy Right Now? So, Ron, we got to pick on you today, or rather, you got to scare the hell out of us today. We'll start with you. What's making you happy right now? Uh, so I have a pet rabbit, and I like to uh, make sure to just do a little cheek massage. Aww. And she, she's basically the reason why I um, made sure to strap the bookcases in our bedroom. I, I haven't even done it for my office. What's her name? Jewel. Jewel. Jewel, like the singer. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's so sweet. Anyone who has rabbits as a pet are, you could tell, totally chill type of people. So, Rosanna, what's making you happy right now? Oh, my goodness, Jewel. Um, so... I've been geeking out and learning a lot about plants in California, mostly so I can get more specific in the way I describe an environment, like saying beach evening primrose rather than just describing a generic landscape dotted with flowers. But um, I randomly learned last week about this amazingly weird plant. They're called Darlingtonias. You'll find them in like North, North California and Oregon. And they're kind of shaped like a cobra head. A friend actually said they look more like scrotums because of the hooded pouch and how translucent and veiny they are. But get this, these plants can survive in areas with very little nitrogen and nutrients. Think bogs and rocky cliff sides because they trap a ton of insects with their bright, glowy hoods. And so they get all their nitrogen from all these bugs. It's like Venus flytraps on steroids. It's so weird. But they're only in like North, North California and like a little bit of Oregon. Google it, Darlingtonias. I've been having way too much fun learning about plants. Fascinating. Finally, Alex, what's making you happy? I'm kind of with Rosanna. I just recently made it to Sequoia National Park to see General Sherman, which is a giant sequoia that's the largest tree in the world. And a couple weeks before that, I went to the Inyo National Forest to see Methuselah, which is a bristlecone pine that's the oldest tree in the world. So I guess it's trees for me right now. I love that California has famous trees. Trees. What's the most famous tree that I know? Just that one from The Simpsons with the lemon tree where they drank beet juice instead. That's all I know about trees. And that was our Masters of Disasters. Ron Lin, Rosanna Shah, Alex Wigglesworth, as always, thank you for scaring us into being good people. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. And on that note, don't forget to sign up for the LA Times' new newsletter, Unshaken. It's all about earthquake readiness and resilience with easy lessons delivered to your inbox over the course of six weeks. And you know I'm going to sign up for it. Like how to have multiple earthquake kits ready, not just one. How to assess your home for danger. Even earthquake insurance. At least I know that when you buy homeowner's insurance, it doesn't cover earthquakes. So even I bought earthquakes insurance. So if I could do it, so can you. But get more lessons from this new newsletter, Unshaken. Sign up today. That's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Stephen A. Cuevas, and Denise Guerra. Our executive producer is Abby Fentress-Swanson. Our editors are Shawnee Hilton and Julia Turner. 
Our engineer is Mario Diaz, and our theme music is by Andrew Ebit. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news and this madre. Gracias. <laughs>